Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Tiffany shares surging the most on record, more than 30% on the heels of this bid by Louis Vuitton's parent company uh, for $14.5 billion. The question is, who are the other potential suitors that could step up to buy Tiffany, or is it just going to be on LVMH uh, to raise their bid? Kim Bassine is joining us now. He's a Bloomberg News U.S. luxury reporter. I want to start with the price tag. What is the implied path forward uh, by the premium that we're seeing baked into Tiffany's shares currently at $130 uh, plus versus the $120 share price uh, that the $14.5 billion price tag would imply? Right. So it's a $14.5 billion proposal from LVMH. That's 120 a share. And um, some analysts are speculating that they might have to go up to as much as 160 And uh, they're also speculating that Tiffany could attract bids for other suitors now. So there's companies that have been mentioned are Richemont, which owns Cartier, and uh, Caring, which is LVMH's biggest fashion rival. That owns It owns brands like Gucci and Saint Laurent. So, Kim, what's the strategy for LVMH and, and perhaps other suitors to uh, you know, go after Tiffany? What are they looking for? Tiffany makes a lot of sense for LVMH because it fills a pretty big gap in its portfolio. Um, of course, it has numerous very strong European fashion labels like Louis Vuitton and Dior, Celine, Fendi. In jewelry, it owns Bulgari, which is much more high-end than Tiffany, but Tiffany would be a way into the U.S. jewelry market and American shoppers. Uh, Jewelry, particularly branded jewelry, has been performing particularly well in luxury lately, and it's a relatively small segment of LVMH compared with fashion and leather goods. Can I talk about the timing? Why now? Uh, I'm not sure why now, but the uh, Tiffany has been on the rebound in recent years. So uh, CEO Alessandro Boliolo has been very busy. He's overhauled Tiffany's marketing, hoping hoping to attract younger shoppers. Uh, he entered into India after reaching what they called a critical mass of demand to warrant moving in there. It vowed to make its more supply its supply chain more transparent and hired thousands of new diamond industry workers. And executives right now are super focused on growing the business in China. And because by opening their own stores there rather than waiting for tourists to come abroad, you avoid the volatility of tourist flows. So let's talk about the luxury market in China. I know China has been, uh, and Asia in general, has been uh, a big driver of the growth in luxury over the last 10 plus years. But so the trade uncertainty here can't be good for luxury. So what are some of the companies that you cover? What what are they saying about uh, trade wars and luxury? Well, let's start with Tiffany, which is in an interesting situation. They make their jewelry here in the U.S., so they do everything backwards. Okay. Uh, the um, the big luxury companies, the American ones, so let's take uh, Tapestry, which owns Coach and Kate Spade and Stuart Weitzman. They used to make a lot of goods in China about 15 years ago, but they've spent the last decade or so diversifying their supply chain. So... Th- in uh, in Coach's case, um, fewer less than five percent of their goods are made in China now because they've moved to places like Vietnam and the the Philippines and India, and uh, this is what we're seeing across the industry. I'm looking right now at uh, LVMH's shares uh, in Paris. 
and they're up just slightly or basically flat. I find this really interesting. Basically, people saying this is a good move. Yeah, I think that is people saying it is it is a good move because it does fill that fill that gap. Tiffany is basically flat in the U.S. now. Uh, it, it used to be a, a more this brand used to be stodgier. Like people didn't. It was less relevant to to young shoppers, which are so so valuable. But these moves lately seem to have to have worked. I'm just wondering about uh, sort of whether this will also diversify Tiffany outside of the U.S. much more because of LVMH's footprint. The push in recent over the past year or so has been to physically go to where the shoppers are and not rely so much on on tourists going abroad to you know Paris or London or New York where their biggest store is they're spending 250 million dollars to renovate their flagship store uh, they're currently they're about to move next door move their whole selling floor next door to their to their old place so they can they can spend all this all this time and money uh, because that is the their their crown jewel of uh, of their business, like as much as ten percent of their global business comes from this one store on Fifth Avenue? in New York on Fifth on Avenue. Fifth Avenue. Okay, Kim Basine, thanks so much for joining us. Kim Basine is a luxury reporter for Bloomberg News, covering all things luxury. Let's shift gears and talk about the story uh, that really is raising so many eyebrows. Microsoft shares jumping to an all-time high today, the battle over cloud services uh, with Amazon.com heating up. Joining us right now, James Bach of Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Microsoft won a Pentagon cloud contract that was much disputed. Uh, There could still be appeals, but can you give us a sense of why this is being viewed by the market as such an important development? Well, I think that it is a uh, confirmation that Microsoft has essentially made it in the infrastructure as a service market. Uh, It's long trailed Amazon.com, and now we're starting to really see that it has uh, kind of forged its role as the number two player. And with with the the Department of Defense, with all of its, you know, very very rigorous security requirements, uh, very highly sensitive workloads going with Microsoft, over Amazon, the larger player, it's a pretty big statement about where Microsoft is in the cloud market. So, James, I know you follow these federal contracts and government contracts very closely. Clearly a, a surprise to the marketplace. How about the, for folks inside the Beltway to see uh, you know, Amazon uh, displaced here? How much of a su- surprise was that? Uh, it depends on who you're talking to. Uh, the, the market may be uh, a little taken aback by it, and some other people who may have felt that Amazon was positioned well uh, to win this. Certainly, we felt that they were the favorite, just given that they have experience with the CIA, uh, given that they have the largest offering uh, in cloud infrastructure uh, in the market. Um, but Microsoft was always a formidable competitor in this uh, competition, so it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that they did uh, end up displacing Amazon, or not to say displacing Amazon, but did kind of you know score an upset here. I don't think this is as stunning of an upset as some may believe it to be. So I wonder how much politics really played in here because Amazon.com, Jeff Bezos, uh, has a stake in the Washington Post. And we know that President Trump has been pretty vocal uh, against Jeff Bezos in part for that. Was that a driver behind this decision in any way? 
Uh, I think that paper's over. It's, it's a fun story to kind of speculate about whether Trump had any uh, influence on how this was, uh, you know, awarded. But it really kind of uh, papers over the, the, the capabilities that Microsoft did have. They definitely had an offering that was capable of taking on this job. Um, and I think it might be, uh, you know, misleading or it might be, you know, overthinking it to say that Trump's, uh, you know, his, his, his kind of bad blood he may have with Jeff Bezos or the Washington Post had anything to do with how this was awarded. You know, the, the whole, you know, acquisition uh, bureaucracy and procurement bureaucracy is much larger than any one president. Um, so it'd be hard to see this being something that Trump was able to influence um, really yep. in any big, meaningful way. So, James, does Amazon have any recourse here? I seem to have heard that maybe they might be able to try to stop this. Uh, yeah, they can go to, and this is just kind of standard procedure for any large contract, they can go to the uh, Government Accountability Office uh, and file a bid protest um, if they feel there was any uh, problems with the overall procurement. Um, that would delay the program by about 100 days. And that's to say they don't you know, even take this maybe to the Court of Federal Claims. Um, there's a lot of different options they can pursue now to um, potentially you know, change the procurement or try to get this back from Microsoft. I want to go back to something you said, which is perhaps people are, are making too much of this in terms of uh, Amazon.com losing its dominance over the cloud uh, business. Why do you think that? Well, I, the, the federal market, and this is also our, kind of our, our, our look at the commercial market too, cloud is a very big um, growing uh, piece of the IT sector. So, you know, one loss, this is about, you know, $10 billion contract over 10 years. These are two companies that have both very large cloud businesses. One contract isn't going to really change too much for uh, any of them. Um, but at the same time, it is a big statement for Microsoft and where they are in the cloud market. For people who, some observers who may have thought that this was a slam dunk for Amazon, I think it's a surprise. But at the same time, uh, th there's a lot of cloud, uh, there's a lot of IT modernization that's going to happen in the federal market. And it's it's very you know it's it's not hard to see that Amazon and Microsoft, regardless of this contract, are going to be a part of that in some way. And there's been some pushback within Microsoft employees about that. How common is that? In terms of well, I mean, in terms of the uh, I just, mean, just I guess doing business with the government and you know with it, whether it's the defense establishment or the CIA. Yeah, we saw this with Google, um, and it's ultimately Google was in the running for Jedi at one point and dropped out because of kind of an employee revolt. So it is something that happens in, in some cases. The difference here is, you know, Microsoft has been with the federal government for a pretty long time. They've been at DOD for about three decades. Uh, it's hard to imagine that any kind of big employee revolt is going to take place and is going to uh, stop Microsoft from operating in the Defense Department. James Bach, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight here. James Bach uh, covers all things in terms of the federal contracts and the government and procurements and all that stuff. He does that for Bloomberg Intelligence. So really giving uh, Bloomberg clients a real sense of what it means, what companies uh, are at risk, what companies are doing, what types of business with the U.S. government on days like today. Really valuable to get his thoughts.
This is a very big week for interest rates and certainly the outlook going forward. The Federal Reserve meets Tuesday and Wednesday, releasing what everyone expects to be a rate cut. That is not what people are watching for. What they're watching for is what they're going to signal in terms of whether this is one and a hold for the time being or whether they uh, expect to cut rates yet again in 2019. Joining us now, RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager focused on fixed income at Federated Investors. RJ, what are you expecting them to signal uh, on Wednesday in terms of future rate cuts? Uh, good morning. Um, I think it's important to realize that uh, although, you know, sort of the one and done phrase is being talked about, this is really the third, right? This is the, the mid-cycle adjustment language, which was invoked by Chairman Powell uh, uh, around the time of the firsties, uh, may in fact be realized by what we see now. Uh, the other periods of mid-cycle adjustment have typically entailed more than one ease, oftentimes two or three. This looks like the third in a series. And our bet here at Federated is that imminent recession is not most likely, and the Fed may, in fact, layer in its third ease and see what happens next. That what happens next is probably a deceleration in economic growth. We're going to see some data this week on that on the GDP front. But the Fed, I think, is probably a little less eager to signal further easing right away. It's becoming state contingent or data dependent in their terminology. Yeah, it's interesting, RJ, you mentioned the data dependency. You know, I think if I were to go down to the FOMC this week and argue for, hey, the data is not supporting this easing environment, I think you guys need to sit on the sidelines. Will they throw me out of the room? Um, I don't know if they'd throw you out of the room. I'll tell you this. I think that the Fed, or at least the core of the Fed, the leadership of the Fed, you know, the, 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 the New York Fed president, uh, the vice chairman, the chairman, Um, They're interested in being forward-looking and proactive at this point in time. Um, They feel as if the United States is being sort of one of the strongest pillars of an otherwise slowing global economy, that they can afford to be proactive because the risk of being wrong, namely we eased and we shouldn't have, doesn't produce an inflationary spiral. Inflation continues to disappoint. So what's the problem with being proactive on growth? That's, That's how I think they think of it. Um, those out there like a Loretta, Loretta Mester who are arguing the data doesn't support it, um, well, that's the backward-looking data. But so today, in a risk management framework, they can afford to, to, to layer, layer in these eases and see how the market and the economy respond. So what does that mean in terms of how you're positioning your portfolio? Um, if you look at the, the, my, my firm, we have spent years being overweight credit and expecting Fed policy normalization in the form of higher rates. That ultimately occurred. We had a complete flip-flop on that last element as the Fed has, has moved towards easing, as we've been discussing on this call. Um, we anticipate the economic deceleration that would occur and selectively have been long duration at various points over the last six months. It's been an incremental win. At this point, we've shifted closer to neutral on a lot of our variables, because I think it's not totally clear that, that what's going to happen next. If President Trump and President Xi in, in China actually strike a meaningful truce phase one deal, then some of the global deceleration some of the problem with residential, uh, non-residential investment in the United States may correct, and we could have a nice soft landing. If we get that, yields head a little higher, corporate credit does okay. On the other hand, the deal hasn't been struck, global economy is slowing, uh, you can't rule out that recession risk is elevated at this point in time. So we're trying to be nimble with almost like sort of a neutral home base on a lot of variables right now. So RJ, as it relates to the R word recession, what is kind of your call there at Federated? Base case? Well, we think we can have the, the fabled soft landing, which, you know, which we had in the 90s, for example. Chairman Greenspan was successful at finding that after the 1994 multi-phased tightening that he oversaw. 
Um, soft landings prolong by definition the economic expansion, uh, which I think Powell is very committed to do. We think he might be able to stick that landing. Let's talk about what a soft landing actually looks like. What's the playbook for a soft landing? Does it mean just a deceleration uh, that's steady but continues with the, uh, with the growth? Or, and how long can that continue? Well, if you believe the, 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 you know, the official uh, arbiters of, of, of potential growth, it's somewhere around 1.8, maybe even 1.9%, right? Um, we think that GDP is going to have a one-handle this week, when we see the, the, the first read on the third quarter result here in the United States, a soft landing, in my opinion, uh, has to mean that in coming quarters, we can grow at potential or higher. Why is that a soft landing? Because that's after the Fed funds rate was increased sharply. It was zero not that long ago. That's after the Fed halted QE. And what they're doing now is not QE. Anybody who thinks it is, is apparently not aware of Federal Reserve history. Uh, and that soft landing of a potential or higher growth means corporate assets can do okay. I think that we're in an era of diminished returns. Where bond yields are, where stocks are, uh, I think investors need to sort of ratchet down return expectations because there's not a lot of easy money in a soft landing scenario. You don't get a recession, so you probably don't get a crash in terms of stocks, I hope. Um, But it's hard to say that there's a lot of attractive undervalued assets right now. RJ Gallo, thank you so much for joining us, giving us your thoughts on the credit markets and the upcoming uh, Fed meeting and outcome coming uh, tomorrow on Wednesday. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income at Federated Investors. Investors joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. With Argentina over the weekend, we saw President-elect Alberto Fernandez win the election. Mauricio Macri is out. He was thought to be market-friendly. Alberto Fernandez, not so much. What will the path be going forward? Joining us now is Michael Bulliger. He is head of emerging markets asset allocation uh, for UBS Global Wealth Management. And Michael, I want to just get your sense of the outcome of this election. It does not seem to be surprising markets all that much. Moves are not that uh, severe. But do you have a feeling uh, that perhaps people are underplaying some of the risks uh, that could potentially uh, cause much steeper losses for debt holders? Yeah, I think when it comes to Argentina, I mean, the big surprise happened earlier when Macri lost the primary um, a a uh, a few weeks back. And now this result actually has been widely uh, expect, expected by the markets and um, the positioning has been adjusted already. Now for us, the critical point now is to look forward. Um, the next few weeks will be critical. So people will be watching, for example, what's going to happen on the FX side. Can the central bank, which has increased uh, capital controls, avoid another steep devaluation of the peso? And then crucially also, what will the new uh, president-elect do between now and its, uh, his inauguration with, with regard to who, which persons will he appoint for you know the cabinet, including Ministry of Finance, Central Bank Governor, etc., and then also we are eagerly awaiting more specific guidance on his economic policies uh, for his uh, upcoming term. So, Michael, for investors in Argentina, you know what is the bull case for being in Argentina now? Um, it seems like there's just so many unknowns. 
there's uh, that's true. There's really a lot of uh, of question marks at this point in time. Uh, one one clear argument why people might hold on to their exposure, and that's also what we, by the way, recommend our clients, is that if you look, for example, at the dollar denominated bonds. And uh, they offer obviously uh, quite a bit of a discount. They tried and uh, they trade in the 40s, and so you know, with uh, with Fernandez now on board, being part of this uh, upcoming government, the president, uh, he has obviously now incentives to try to come up with a you know uh, as market friendly um, policy program as possible, and that can also in- involve that maybe the restructuring, if it has to happen, might be even uh, you know a bit less market and friendly than what bonds currently are pricing. So Argentina has $282 billion of debt outstanding. People concerned uh, that they will default yet again. They are a serial defaulter, and this is uh, going to be yet another one. They already have defaulted on some of it. I guess uh, the question is, what are recoveries going to be? A number of people have been saying around 40 cents on the dollar seems uh, like that might be the most likely. Where do you uh, come in on this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as I said before, there's really a lot of unknowns. Um, there's a wide range of indications on where a possible recovery value could be. But again, just to reiterate uh, what I said before, I think current prices do reflect quite a dire outcome on such a restructuring, a possible restructuring. And, you know, we're not advising people to now buy into Argentine paper, but rather sort of holding a market weight exposure at this point in time. So broadening out to Latin America in general, we've seen a series of uh, situations that bode to even more unrest, whether it's Chile, whether it's Ecuador, uh, and uh, the prospect of yet another default there. What do you make of all of this? Are you recommending people get out of Latin American assets? No, that's not what we are recommending, actually. I mean, first of all, it's worth noting that, you know, you mentioned Chile, you mentioned Ecuador, we talked about Argentina, but this is not a topic that is specific alone to Latin America. You remember the Chile shown in, in France, you remember, uh, you know, current protests in Spain, uh, the crisis in, in, in Lebanon. Um, so this is almost a global phenomenon. And, you know, what many of these protests have in common is that uh, people point toward, uh, you know, issues of inequality. People point to, you know, a lack of perceived quality of what their government is doing. And, uh, you know, for us as investors, what we tell people is to look at, you know, each each country, each market individually to assess the likelihood of uh, such an unrest to happen. And then also, what can the government do to resolve that situation? Now, looking at, at Chile, which has been a poster child for liberal policies, for economic reform, which has very strong debt credit fundamentals, we're not concerned at all that, you know, for example, the Chilean government or some of the Chilean corporates that we cover will uh, see issues servicing their debt. So there uh, we see it as a temporary bout of volatility, whereas elsewhere, you know, the situation might look more challenging. Michael Bolger, thanks so much for joining us. Michael's the head of emerging market asset allocation for UBS Global Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.